Welcome back. You're listening to Jason Lee Willis's Bible study series, Examining Moses. Today's episode, La Mort de Moses. From the Hyksos invasion to the rehab in the desert, the Exodus era witnessed some of the strangest times in history. For 120 years, Moses was the figure at the center of it. The plan seemed to involve more than just freeing a people from bondage. Instead, a cosmic battle occurred to put evil back in its place. Starting with the gods of Egypt, Moses went toe-to-toe with the priests of Belial. Before the plan could finish, the Hebrews needed to have faith, resulting in 40 years of isolation to learn how to be righteous. Now with Gandalf, um, I mean Moses, leading the fellowship across the Jordan River, the Hebrews were about to finish the fight. The accounts of the Exodus mostly focus on year one and year 40. Much of that has to do with the fact that Moses was in the tabernacle and the Hebrews just hung out, eating manna and learning the Bible, which was coming hot off the press daily. Somewhere in the wilderness, the Hebrews would move camp from time to time, but mostly stayed in complete isolation. When they finally popped up from the toaster, they were 11 days from Edom. Here are some highlights of the key events. Numbers 20. Moses is denied the promised land. Deuteronomy 3.27. A duplicate account of Moses whacking the rock with too much style. Numbers 33, Israel prepares to cross the Jordan. Deuteronomy 24:33, Israel warned to remember Amalek. Deuteronomy 31, Joshua is chosen to lead phase B. And Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies on Mount Nebo. Since the death of Moses is the focus of our episode, and this series focuses mostly on Moses, let's examine it a bit. Verse 1. And Moses went up from the plains of Moab unto the mountain of Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, that is, over against Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land of Gilead unto Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim, and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah, unto the utmost sea, and the south, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, unto Zoar. And the Lord said unto him, This is the land which I swear unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob, saying, I will give it unto thy seed. I have caused thee to see it with thine eyes, but thou shalt not go over thither. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab over against Bethpeor. But no man knoweth the sepulture unto this day. And Moses was a hundred and twenty years old when he died. His eyes were not dim, his natural force abated, and the children of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. So the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, For Moses had laid his hands upon him, and the children of Israel hearkened unto him, and did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
there arose not a prophet since in Israel like unto Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. In all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh, and to all his servants, and to all his land. And in all that mighty hand, and in all the great terror which Moses showed in the sight of Israel. While it is disappointing that Moses could not finish things, these verses certainly remind us how awesome Moses was. City of Palms. First, I want to point out that Moab's geography is much different today. Again, go to Google Earth and you'll see an arid wasteland. Yet, 3,000 years ago, Moses looked down upon a paradise of sorts. My point? If Moab and Jordan was this much different, then perhaps the southern parts of Israel were better. And if the southern parts of Israel were better, like Beersheba and the Negev Desert, then the definition of wilderness should be applied to Arabia. His sepulcher. For the um, most famous Hebrew prior to Christ, it is a very strange thing not to commemorate his tomb. Keeping it a mystery has obvious logic. We'll get back to this one. 120 years old. Was it the whacking the rock or his age that disqualified him? I, I say this because way back at Genesis 6, there is a disputed phrase that either means God will bring the flood in 120 years, or the natural lives of human are uh, now capped at 120 years. Many folks like the um, warning because the 120-year cap was grandfathered into humanity. Uh, tapering of ages began immediately, but even Abraham lived 175. Was Moses the first one to not reach 121? Did the system begin then? His natural force. Paul writes about being reborn and regaining our original flesh, which will be perfect. Although Moses was born with fallen flesh, he nonetheless stood in the purifying fires of God and also ate manna for 40 years. Despite being 120, he was still in good shape. He was not withered and weak. He was still strong. This is why I ponder the 120-year rule. Face to face. Oh boy, do I have things to say about this one. But first, let's get back to the burial. A strange death. When it says, no man knew where Moses was buried, it implies that an angel showed up to take care of the duties. Enemies would have plundered it. Fans would have worshipped it. Origen, a famed historian, wrote about the account being found in something called the Assumption of Moses. While referenced in the days of the early church, an actual copy has not been found until recent years, with many scholars rolling their eyes at it. While it is a bit odd, St. Jude might have had an original copy when he referenced it in Jude 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, 
durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. Now, Jude's account was how to handle evil folks. But in making his point, he brings up a very strange account of how Michael and Satan got in an argument about the body of Moses. Whether it was just guarding the tomb or a law and order trial of worth, we'll never really know. But it is certainly a curious and slightly epic finish to our hero. The Jesus Tent Again, the end of Deuteronomy gives Moses a nice send-off. But when it said, The Lord knew face to face, my brain springs popped out of my ears. What? Exodus 3.2 is the first time Moses has a God moment, but it varies from saying, Angel of the Lord, to a direct Lord encounter. Much later, in Exodus 33.11, it references that the Lord spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Very cool, but what? Exodus 34.34 adds more of the same when it brought up a veil to dial down the holiness when speaking with the Hebrews, but that he would take it off to speak with God. Face to face with God? Luke dials this down a bit with his accounts in Acts chapter 3, sorry, 7:37. This is what Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel which spake to him in Mount Sinai and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. The angel which spake unto him? The reason I freak out about the wording here is the absolute clarity of two other verses. First, look at Exodus 33:20. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me, and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass, while my glory passes by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by, and I will take away mine hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. So here, God clearly wants to avoid killing Moses and dials things down a bit for him. Next, let's look at John, the son of thunder, or Thunderson, I guess. (laughs) He sounds Norwegian if you call him John Thunderson. Uh, John, the son of Zebedee. You know, the, the disciple. After an epic Jesus is God, the word creator opening to chapter one, John goes on to say in verse 17, For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So right after clarifying that 
Jesus equals God, John clarified that Moses did not see God. So, who did Moses see? The Metatron. No, not the Transformers villain. That'd be Megatron. The Metatron is an old Jewish concept that might explain seeing God without seeing God. According to tradition, this messenger is some sort of heavenly scribe. Some see him as Enoch transformed, while others clarify he is an angel, but not God. The title means name like his master, which is why the burning bush scene involves both an angel and the Lord. Theophanies. Christian scholars noted the same concept throughout the Old Testament. In some places, it was just an angel. Yet in other places, it was the angel of the Lord. There were several places where God revealed himself to man, such as incidents with Adam and Eve, Cain, Noah, Moses, a bunch of prophets, a bad guy, Balaam, and of course, David. The angel of the Lord appears 103 times, although I did not personally confirm this. Uh, Early church fathers quickly theorized, read John chapter 1, that this phrase might have meant the pre-incarnate Christ. Prior to being born in flesh in Bethlehem, Christ existed and witnessed the creation as well as the fall of Satan. Theodoret, another scholar with a hard-to-say name, assumed that the angel was probably Christ without human form. Eastern fathers clarified that the word of God should be seen as Jesus Christ prior to taking flesh. Protestant theologians called this the Christophany, while Jehovah's Witnesses saw these appearances as both Jesus and Michael. It is an abstract concept, isn't it? Having the Christ visit Moses allows this strange contradiction to exist. John is right when he says no man has ever seen God's face, and Moses is right when he claims to have seen a face which belongs to the Christ. Remember, Jesus and Moses actually meet in the Gospels. And after six days, Jesus taketh with him Peter and James and John his brother, and bringeth them up unto a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his garments became white as light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter answered and said unto Jesus, Lord, is it good for us to be here? If thou wilt, I will make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And skipping ahead a few verses, Jesus replies by saying, But I say unto you that Elijah is already come. And they knew him not, but did unto him whatsoever they would. Even so shall the Son of Man also suffer of them. Then understood the disciples that he spake unto them, of John the Baptist. First, 
I want you to remember that both Elijah and Moses have been to Mount Horeb, which is why I think Jesus went out to the same wilderness to be tempted by the devil at the same mountain. Is this the same mountain above? Most likely not, since the six days do not allow enough natural travel. But who knows with Jesus? In this scene, Jesus meets with two heavyweights of the Old Testament, shows his true form to the disciple, and seems to gear up in advance of the crucifixion. Now, remember that Moses was clearly dead, which seems to imply that Elijah is also dead, with the only explanation in this book was that Elijah died when John the Baptist died. Uh, if you want more explanation, by examining Christmas for more. <laughs> uh, the supernatural lights on this mountain remind me so much of the supernatural lights on a mountaintop known as Horeb. Did John, Peter, and James witness the same face of God that Moses claimed to see? Jesus. Remember, this is Jesus transfigured, and thus he would glow. So when you picture Moses in the tabernacle for 40 years and the pillar would appear above the tent, picture the transfigured Christ sitting face to face with Moses. After all, Jesus is the Word. And what did Moses do in his tent? He wrote words in the beginning. Jesus at Horeb this is not the only time Jesus and Moses came together in the Gospels. When he goes into the wilderness, which I believe to be Horeb, to be tempted for 40 days, Jesus does something most are not aware of. He battles Satan with Moses. Yes, the word was in the tent, Moses wrote down the words, and 13 centuries later, Jesus repeats the same words that he originally gave to Moses. Weird, huh? Let's look at what Luke has to say. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. In Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being 40 days tempted of the devil. And in those days, he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterwards hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written, that man shall not be lived by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up unto a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, all this power I will give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him unto Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou beest the Son of God, cast thyself down from here, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, 
and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. So, long story short, Jesus won, using the words of Moses as a shield. Remember how Jude warned us about debating Satan, and how Michael only said, The Lord rebuke you, as his passive-aggressive defense? Well, Jesus goes toe-to-toe with Satan in a classic courtroom battle worthy of Perry Mason, for you boomers out there. Let's look at what I'm talking about. Deuteronomy 8 verses 3 is where it talks about bread alone. Deuteronomy 6.16 is where it talks about worshiping only God. And Deuteronomy 6.13 brings up the do not tempt the Lord. This also confirms that the Textus Receptus scriptures given unto Moses were validated by Jesus when he used them against Satan. Cool. Somewhere... Mary and Joseph and a very proud Sunday school teacher were smiling. Okay, so Jesus had the Holy Spirit descend on him already, but as the non-transfigured Christ, I'm not sure how much of his human brain he relied upon, or or if he had Holy Spirit Siri to help. It is a test. It is temptation. Jesus passed the test. However, there is a very, very strange use of the words of Moses here. Satan quotes Moses. Now, Satan may or may not be in the loop with what's going on. After all, he was actively part of a dialogue between himself and God in testing Job, right? How much did he know about the Christ plan? Like Job... Satan tried to catch this Jesus fellow in some sort of legalese gotcha moment. Did Satan think Jesus was just a dude from Nazareth and very much like Job? Did he have a clue that the window of heaven opened up above John the Baptist, God spoke, and the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus? This is kind of like an episode of Undercover Boss. Satan is being bad thinking it is a substitute teacher or something, only to find out that God is watching behind those Hebrew eyes. Heavy stuff. Yet when testing Jesus, Satan brings up a line about the Christ. He brings up the rules that the real Christ will be able to command the angels. Now, it is my belief that Revelation 12 is a flashback that parallels Luke 10.18. So in this scenario, Satan has already had his butt kicked by the Christ back in the day, along with the angels, and was already thrown down to earth. But here, he wants a non-glowing, human-looking Jesus to flex his Christ muscles a bit, which Jesus refused and passed the test. Okay, hold your horses. Psalm 91 is about the Christ? (laughs) Leave it to Satan to not only lose, but to screw up while losing. For many Christians, they view Psalm 91 in a very personal way. 
The Bible is awesome like that, isn't it? It was written for a specific context, but often has layers of meaning. It's the best writing in human history. As an English teacher, what else has poetry, symbolism, plot twists, and bracketing that takes place from multiple POV chapters and characters, yet weaves together into one cohesive story? Yet, King David did not write all the songs in Psalms. In fact, you can see that Psalm 90 has a heading or break that introduces a new writer, Moses. Remember, Moses broke into song after the crossing of the Red Sea. Because of this, and the heavy use of Moses in the temptation, the author of Psalm 91 is most likely Moses. Normally, I use the old King James Version in my Bible studies just to contrast the English from four centuries ago to today's versions. However, when I had my light bulb moment, I had a new King James Bible. So I'm going with that one in this case. It is my theory that Moses wrote this psalm to express the mind-blowing concept that the Word came to his tent to give him the words that would become the Bible so that the Word could use the words when he comes to earth in the flesh to save Moses from death in the impermanence in the underworld. Moses celebrates this time-bending concept in a song. Since Moses is the writer, his voice is represented by the I or first person. Since he is referencing Christ, the you or the second person is Jesus. This leaves God as he or the third person. Uh, so I'm going to give you each verse and then I'll give you my modern paraphrase. Again, Psalm 91 verse 1. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Translation, the Christ currently hides in God's secret place. And if you want to know more about the secret place, see Revelation 12.5. Verse 2, I will say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him I will trust. Translation, Moses trusts God's plan. Verse 3, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Translation, God will protect the Christ from Satan during a trial. Verse 4, He shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. Translation, God will cover Jesus with the Holy Spirit. Jesus will use the Bible as defense against Satan. Verse 5. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that walks in darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Translation. The devil will do everything he can to stop this plan, but if Jesus trusts God, the plan will work. Verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Translation, Slaughter of the Innocents in Bethlehem, Joseph left first. 
Verse 8, only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. Translation, Jesus will be surrounded by sin, yet will not sin, thus ending the Job debate. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord, who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Translation, Jesus went to a holy place, could be the temple, his local synagogue, or even Mount Horeb. Because Jesus trained in righteousness, he will get to fulfill the entire plan, which means getting to the cross. Verse 11 and 12. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest, your, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Translation. The angels are loyal to the Christ. If called upon, they will answer. Up to the temptation, there is no evidence that this has happened. Once the temptation ends, the angels show up. Later, Jesus commands the seas, demons, etc. Verse 13. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. Translation? I'm really not certain about this one. Lion and cobra seem symbolic. Um, young lion is symbolic. Um, if I were to take a stab at it, I would say this is some sort of code for, I don't know, Belial, Beelzebub, and Satan. Uh, Jesus will crush the head of Satan, and the last two enemies are death and Hades. Three symbols, three enemies. Verse 14. Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will be set on high because he has known my name. Translation. Because Christ has visited me, Moses, and gave me the words for Deuteronomy, I will help him out during the temptation. I will help Jesus win because Jesus visited me here in the tent. Jesus will quote me. Verse 15. He shall call upon me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. Translation. Jesus will call for me, Moses. And even though I will be dead at the time, I'll visit him on some anonymous mountain for the transfiguration. Because of this little pep talk, Jesus will have the strength to finish the plan, which is crucifixion. Verse 16. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Translation. I, Moses, will live for a long time, 120 years, yet will live again during the transfiguration and then be restored when Jesus harrows me from hell or shale. That is the way to end a book on Moses. Moses dies, but ultimately helps defeat the bad guy. When Jesus dies, he does not die in defeat. Instead, he victoriously goes down into shale to get Moses and other righteous dead. Amen. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to this. I know I'm always looking for the most 
epic way to see things, and in my zeal for the Lord, I might have misread or misunderstood passages. I don't need to be right, but creating this has allowed me to immerse myself in the Word, and that's a good place to be. <laughs>